My name is Jay Schneider, and I was born in the United States. I am sure of my age, and I know I was born in 1974. Around five years of age, my very much alive parents threw me a birthday party and invited my friends. We played games, I got presents, and there was cake. I enjoyed playing outside in the woods around my home, sometimes shooting BB guns. When I was around 10 years old, I was a Cub Scout, and I used a knife to carve sticks. I also watched a lot of TV. I estimate between 4,000 and 5,000 minutes per month. In 1991, I had a part-time job after school. In 1992, I graduated high school and went to university in California. I then went on to work a series of jobs, often learning skills with one employer I was able to then use with another employer. In 2000, I went to a museum in Cambodia and paid a $1 entrance fee. Mr. Aki Ra, this is a nickname given to him by a Japanese friend later in life, was born in Cambodia. He is unsure of his age, but believes he was born in either 1970 or 1973. At around five years of age, his parents were killed by the Khmer Rouge. He was forced to work in the field until he was about 10 years old when he was given a rifle and forced to fight with the Khmer Rouge. He was taught how to lay landmines and spent the next three years doing so in the same fields in which he used to work. After the Vietnamese invaded Cambodia, he was taken into custody, conscripted into the army, and he was again tasked with placing landmines. It is estimated that he placed between 4,000 and 5,000 landmines per month. In 1991, he worked for the UN as a D-miner removing landmines. In 1992, he returned to his community and continued disarming and removing landmines independently. Having no proper equipment, he used a knife and a stick to do his work. After defusing the landmines and unexploded ordnance, he would bring the scraps back to his home. In 1999, as tourists began hearing about the young Khmer man who had a house full of defused ordnance, he began charging $1 to see his collection and raise money to fund his work. This became the Cambodian Landmine Museum. In 2000, a young American backpacker came to visit and talked with Mr. Ra about his story and his work. This event was likely inconsequential and forgettable to Mr. Aki Ra, but extremely impactful for the visitor. Welcome back to the J-Luck Club, presented by Honey Roasted T-Shirts. Honey Roasted T-Shirts, they don't sell T-Shirts, but if they did, they'd be Honey Roasted. I am still Jay, and happy to have you here with me as I look back on my emails and journal writings from 20 years ago as I set off to wander through Southeast Asia. In our last episode, I'd left Japan, my home of three years. And after a quick stopover in South Korea to explore Seoul in the DMZ, I found myself in Bangkok, where I planned to decompress and reset, which I knew was successfully achieved when a good friend from Japan commented I was oozing serenity. This wasn't my first time in Thailand, so the week was really about taking care of some logistics and planning and getting myself ready for what was to come. Getting myself ready for, well, let's go to an internet cafe in Phnom Penh, Cambodia and find out. Date, Saturday, 
August 12, 2000. From Jay Schneider. Subject. Update from Jay. So I played with a hand grenade today. Shot an AK-47 too, but the grenade was more significant for me. But I'll get up to all that in a bit. Another mass email to update you as to the whereabouts and goings-on of Jay. For those of you who have no interest or don't know who I am, oops and apologies. For those of you who can't read English, well, this is good studying for you, ne? On July 30th, under a scorching late morning sun, pack on my back, flip-flops on my feet, sweat in uncomfortable places, and dust everywhere, I crossed the Thai-Cambodian border into Poipet. The border official in charge of stamping our passports seemed in no hurry to do so, and was quite content to chat away with friends and leave to make phone calls. His unhurried pace surprised me, because in each passport was a 200 baht bill, which he gracefully slipped into the desk drawer. And simple economics tells me, the faster you stamp the passports, the faster the money comes in. Ah, Cambodia is young in the ways of corruption. Personally, I didn't put any money in my passport and got through just the same. For those of you screaming, Jay, you missed your chance to participate in the time-honored tradition of third-world bribery. Fret not. Those who have no international health card to show have to pay 40 baht. Hey, it's cheaper than actually getting the shots. Hot, dusty, uncomfortable, shady corruption. I loved every bit of it. I waited with others for a pickup truck to fill up, and we were off to see him rip. Atop a dozen packs, eight of us sat sprawled, held on for dear life as we began our journey on at one time may have been a road. There were five who paid more to sit inside the cab, but there's no need to mention them. The first 90 minutes were spent laughing, because what else can you do, at the potholes as large as our truck which each vehicle had to negotiate. With each crater, the mysterious hard object which somehow managed to find their way to the top of each pack gouged into our legs, sides, and seats harder and harder. One man was nearly tossed from the truck on several occasions. The novelty, absurdity, and just plain outlandishness of our situation resulted in laughter and, at least on the surface, good spirits among all. Though patience was wearing thin and the thought of another five to six hours of it, so the meal stop was well-timed. Oh yeah, there was something wrong with the axle of the truck. After a long wait while the truck was checked, the mood was borderline bitter. But before boarding, we rearranged the packs and the remainder of the journey promised to be more enjoyable. As it happened, the road was much better, that's a relative term, mind you, and we were more comfortable, and, and perhaps the Mekong whiskey, which some had indulged in, helped make the trip pure fun. We hardly minded the extra man who jumped aboard to share our already cramped space. No, he was a really cool guy, a Cambodian archaeologist working to restore some temples. He explained to us how this stretch of road had recently been improved, I sure would hate to have seen it before, and where the landmines had recently been found. Oh, that explains the large holes in the bridges, and how the road's security... I say that in air quotes, people rarely rob tourists anymore. The images of rural Cambodia are with me still, and as it grew dark, how would we avoid the holes in the bridges? The moonless sky showed us more stars than I've ever seen in my life. A brilliant journey. Nothing brings people closer together than shared misery, so I'll tell you about the players with whom I'd spend the next few days. Neil and Jillian, a Scottish couple traveling for a few months. Note, the ride to the border left at 6.30 in the morning so there was constant reference to this time throughout the journey. Though my ear can usually adjust quickly to differing accents, it's amazing how much half-six sounds like have-sex. Steve and Emma, English couple traveling for a year. Sharon, Canadian student. Ina, Israeli girl who had just started her travels. Taka, a 19-year-old Japanese kid who seemed very relieved when I spoke Japanese with him. 
Seven of us shared two rooms, Taco didn't stay with us, which I thought was a great idea because I ended up in a bed with myself. We spent three days seeing the temples of Angkor Wat, and I'm not going to go into too much detail following my philosophy of, if you want to know, you gotta go. The temples and ruins were amazing, and while I haven't seen the pyramids, the ruins in Greece, or any such wonders, Angkor Wat and the other temples just blew me away. I was touched on many levels. The sheer size and grandeur of something built so long ago, the carvings and artwork and the detail of it all, and the Indy Jones in me who just loved being able to explore overgrown ruins in relative freedom and isolation. One afternoon, we, the seven and our moto drivers, rode up to a river in which there were numerous carvings. We hiked to a waterfall, swam about, we had water fights with the drivers, and to watch them swim, play, and swing from vines, they seemed to have even more fun than we did. Last word about Angkor Wat. I sat under a starry sky and waited for the sun to rise behind Angkor Wat. This is easily one of the most incredible moments I've experienced. To be continued. This is where my adventures truly began. This was exactly what I wanted. Yes, I, I love Seoul. I left with a desire to return and spend more time there. And certainly in Bangkok, I got my oozing serenity on and found new places to explore. But all that was just a warm-up for what was about to come. I mean, uncomfortably riding through the dusty, war-torn roads of the Cambodian countryside for several hours in the back of a pickup truck sitting atop poorly arranged and extremely uncomfortable packs with a group of strangers, that is the stuff a full life is made of. So three key things that stand out for this part of the trip. Number one, that truck ride. I mean, the truck ride was an amazing experience. Gathering with a bunch of fellow globe trekkers to hop in the back of a pickup truck in a new land. I mean, the scenery was beautiful. It was just gorgeous. As we gripped on for dear life, we struggled to smile despite whatever hard objects were sticking into our backsides. We were soothed by the beauty which surrounded us. And I tell you, nothing bonds a group of people like misery and the excitement and absurdity of the situation. I mean, I think we were laughing because it, we were genuinely enjoying the experience, but also you laugh because it hurts too much to cry. If you are not familiar with Cambodia's unfortunate history, seriously, please read a book or watch The Killing Fields or, or something to get some sense of the craziness that happened just a few decades ago when Pol Pot and the Khmer Rouge took power and deliberately and ruthlessly just gutted the country and culture, stripping them of the education, experience, expertise, culture. I mean, they literally started at year zero, as Pol Pot called it, and just devastated a people. I mean, actively pushing your country back to the Dark Ages, eschewing education and technology to say nothing of the millions of death. Seriously, read a book. If you don't know about it, check it out. Though in 1979, the Vietnamese army invaded Cambodia, ousting the Khmer Rouge, they were still active in remote parts of the country well into the 90s, such as the parts of which we were now driving. At the time of my trip, the country was just a few years past this, so we didn't have any realistic threat of banditry or roadside violence, but the poor conditions of the roads, I mean, some might have been from heavy rains or just lack of maintenance and care, but certainly the damage, and as the local archaeologist pointed out, was definitely war damage. And juxtaposing such evil and senseless death and violence with the surrounding beauty was ever-present through my time in Cambodia. 
As I mentioned, we made a stop for a meal, and there was some mumbling from the driver about a vehicle trouble. And before setting off again, we did, you know, arrange things to make a more comfortable journey. The sunset was incredible, no doubt. But without any cities or light pollution, the stars were magnificent. And I think, as I mentioned before, I don't think I've ever seen so many stars in my life. Number two, the people. So one of the great joys of traveling is meeting other travelers. In my last episode, I talked about the purpose of travel, whatever purpose and goals a traveler may have. One of the best parts of travel is human connections, the people you meet. Of course, when in Cambodia, the bonds with Cambodians are enriching. But as I said before, this wasn't a vacation, this was life, and I was a human being living life on this planet. The souls in the back of that truck were also humans, with whom I shared a fantastic few days, and because of whom my life is richer. We were thrown together because we just happened to be crossing the border on the same day, the same time, heading the same direction. But we ended up choosing to spend the next few days together, and then we went our separate ways. This happened throughout my trip, and such as in life. In some cases, the interaction was just a conversation somewhere, or a bus ride, or a quick drink. In other cases, I'm still in touch with people to this day. Sometimes there are people where a genuine connection occurred, and it just felt natural to share the journey. And other times on my trip, I was forced to share an experience based on circumstance. I mean, I've literally shared rooms with strangers, people I hadn't known hours, maybe even minutes before. In the case of the pickup truck crew, we decided to get two rooms and share amongst us. The two couples shared a room, that made sense, and Sharon, Ina, and I shared another. But there's a lot of trust involved. But I figured I had the best deal. Ina, who had just finished her two years of military service in Israel, so I figured she would either protect us or kill us in her sleep. Either way, I felt we were in good shape. Anyways, this was a great way to start my trip. Number three, the temples of Angkor. Holy effing G. I cannot believe that for the first 20 years or so of my life, I had no idea that these amazing structures even existed. And yes, people talk about Angkor Wat, which is the image shown on the Cambodian flag and currencies, but that is just one temple complex. It is large, it's beautiful, and amazing, but that's just one. Angkor Wat is massive, and climbing the levels, admiring the carvings, and just wandering around being in total awe is an amazing experience. I mean, the amount of vision and effort into the design and construction and how long it took. But a visit to Angkor Wat itself would be an unforgettable day. We're all worth this truck ride. But that was just the start. Down the road you hit Bayon with these large faces on every wall, and then to prom, the classic overgrown ruins with tree roots weaving through the temple stones. We spent three days exploring some of the thousands of structures around Siem Reap. I was fortunate enough to return two weeks later for another three days. This allowed for me to revisit some structures at different times of day. I tell you, I've been to Angkor Wat for multiple sunrises, a couple of sunsets, some midday wanderings and journal writings, and it goes deeper each time. Some detailed carvings of everyday life at Bayon, I completely missed them on my first visit. And it was on my third trip I noticed the circus and carvings of a woman giving birth, though I'm not sure she was giving birth at the circus. My memory's a bit hazy on that. Some of the temples are close to Siem Rip, where others are further away. We hired motorcycle guides and hopped on the back as we cruised through villages in the countryside. I remember once during a downpour, we had to pull over and a local family let us take shelter on, until the storm passed. One afternoon, my travel mates took a rest, and my guide took me to a temple complex where I was literally the only visitor, and I had it all to myself. Walking deep into the structure, I truly felt like Indiana Jones. 
After that, my guide took me to a large reservoir. It was a hot afternoon, and you can be sure we went for a swim. Our motorbike drivers were amazing guides, and they definitely added to the entire experience. Our first morning, the seven of us had a lazy start, so we kind of missed this recommended sunrise at Angkor Wat. But our guides were on it, and they recommended we skip Angkor Wat that morning, since all the visitors start their day there, and we went straight to Bayan and other nearby temple structures and pretty much had the place to ourselves. Our drivers knew the regular crowd patterns and how to avoid them. They also took us further away locations, once pulling over to pay some man with a very large gun some money, just don't ask, don't tell, and they took us on a jungle trek to a waterfall. It was an incredible afternoon. Our second morning, we did see the sunrise at Angkor Wat, but there was already a bit of light in the sky by the time we got there. Later that day, I met up with Taka, the Japanese friend, and he told me in determined Japanese that I absolutely had to go earlier. So I spoke with my driver, and the third morning, he agreed to pick me up at 5 a.m., and we made our way to Angkor Wat while it was still pitch dark in the sky. I wrote about this in my email, but... I've just got to mention it again. So it was a moonless night, and I sat in total darkness apart from the countless stars above. I think there were a handful of other people on the grounds at that time, but I couldn't hear or even sense them. And I felt as if it was only me in the darkness and silence. Slowly, a faint light crept in, and the outline of Angkor Wat began to appear. I will remember this experience for the rest of my life. On our last night, our drivers invited us to a local Khmer club, Martini was the name of it, and we met their friends and we danced the night away. Before we get to my parting story, a quick note on scams. Whether traveling abroad or in your hometown, of course bad things can happen. I mean, on the extreme end, it could be violence or death. In some cases, being separated from all your money and possessions. This may come by force or simply having one person have more knowledge than their victim, but this is a matter of someone being able to take advantage of someone else. A vast majority of the time, however, particularly on travel, it's not about death and loss of all your worldly possessions, but more about just paying more money than you should have for a product or service. Remember Toshi, the Japanese man I met, uh, who described his misfortune of riding in an unmetered taxi in the Philippines? Yes, sometimes taking an unofficial taxi ends in robbery or kidnapping in countries, but usually it just means you pay more than you should for your ride. But usually the reason you want a meter taxi and the meter to be on is so that at the end of the journey you pay the standard rate versus some made-up inflated charge that is many times more than fair. Anyway, so remember that amazing truck ride? Well, later in my travels, I learned that the mechanical issue is a common deception for that journey. The scam though I'll use that term very lightly, is that by waiting in the small village while the truck is supposedly being repaired, it ensures that by the time you arrive in Siem Reap, it's quite late. They pull up to a guest house, and while you are by no means forced to stay there, after a late arrival from a long, tiring journey in a place you've never been before, you probably won't be bothered to go shopping around for places to stay. Again, we were not forced to stay there. In fact, Taka, our Japanese friend, already had a place in mind where he wanted to stay, and the driver took him there without any protest or issue. But the seven of us were up for anything, and it was awfully convenient because we were already there, so we took our chances. And I'm sure the truck driver got his commission for delivering seven happy customers. The guest house was fantastic, let me be clear about this. More on this in a moment. And we were by no means overcharged, so really the only thing we were deprived of was our free choice. And technically, we weren't even deprived of this, as we were just too tired and too green to know any better. 
And let me make it clear. Once I wised up to the game that happens in so many countries, the guy who picks you up at the train or the boat station will steer you towards accommodation or tours where they will get the kickback, I definitely was just much more aware of my choice. Sometimes I would happily take a taxi driver's recommendation, knowing his cousin or brother or friend would benefit. And other times I chose to go my own way. But being aware of this at least made me more aware of my options. And again, just to be perfectly clear, the guest house we stayed at was amazing and I would highly recommend it. The girls and I split a room that cost $5 a night, and it came with an attached bathroom and shower, which is not always the case. The room was in good condition, the staff was friendly, there was a great bar, restaurant to hang out in with other guests at the end of a long day. Fun fact, they offered free marijuana to guests, if that's your thing. But I'll tell you more. After ordering food or drink, you would go up to the bar and open a composition notebook and write down what you had ordered under your name. At the end of the visit, the staff would add up everything. No, correction. The staff would ask you to add up everything that you had written down, including asking you how many nights you had stayed, and then they would total up the bill. So, trust is a two-way street, people. And the staff at the Hello Guest House in CM Reap were awesome. My closing story is something that didn't happen in CM Reap, but earlier in the day I wrote the email. At the beginning of my email, I mentioned something about a grenade, but I never actually circled back to it. That actually happened a lot in these emails, as I was trying to cram in so much during a quick internet cafe session. But I also figured that's a good sign. I had so much to share, I just couldn't get to it all. But I'll share it now. One Saturday morning, I woke up in Phnom Penh and thought about my itinerary for the day. I planned to visit a market, walk along the water, check out the National Museum of Cambodia, and take a ride out to visit the Killing Fields Memorial. But my first stop was going to be a firing range outside the city. Now why would this red-blooded American boy who grew up in the Pacific Northwest and was no stranger to firearms go to a firing range in Cambodia when he could just as easily shoot guns in the woods back home? Because I planned to throw a grenade. It was only a few years out of the true wild, wild west days of Cambodia, which probably happens in any country during a fragile transition in which corruption and exploitation are rampant. It was rumored in those days you could go to local markets and buy unused and found weaponry and explosives left over from years of war. About a year or two ago, an enterprising businessman set up a proper establishment, and that was my destination. After leaving the guest house, I found a motorcycle driver, negotiated a fare, and was off. Arriving at the outdoor range, I found a very organized and professional affair. I was warmly greeted and escorted to a table and chairs, and I was offered a menu which included drinks, light snacks, and on the back, a list of available weapons and prices. Again, having grown up shooting handguns and rifles, fun fact, I earned my marksman and marksman first class shooting badges at Camp Orkila when I was nine, and some experience with semi-automatic weapons, my eyes scanned past the basic guns and assault rifles, and quickly found what I was looking for. Grenade, $15. There was more heavy weaponry, of course. RPGs, anyone? But I was on a budget. After making my selection, one of the staff, my guide or instructor, disappeared and soon came back with a pineapple-looking grenade. He led me on a short walk through some bushes, where we stopped at a small pond. Ah, of course. That made sense. I would be throwing the grenade into the water, because, well... I wanted the experience of the act and not the souvenir of shrapnel in my body. Not only was it safer, but the explosive burst of water would be supremely satisfying. My new friend gently set down the grenade and then picked up some small rocks. 
He handed me one, and then with the other, showed me how I would throw the grenade. I would hold on tightly, pull the pin, swing my arm back, then lob it towards the pond in a smooth underhand throw. After demonstrating once, he asked me to try. Like a PE teacher or coach, he corrected my stance, making sure I was in an optimal position, and I took the rock, mimed pulling the pin, swung my arm back, and lobbed it forward in a beautiful high arc of which I was quite proud. No! Too high! The look of panic on his face deflated my pride, but doing some quick math, I did realize that having the grenade explode mid-air could really ruin all of our days. Forget about me, I have no idea what his workers' comp situation is. He found another rock, demanded I try again, which I dutifully did, and my throw was much more flattened than before. This was acceptable, and now it was time. He put the grenade in my hands, and with his own hands tightly around mine, he looked me in the eyes and asked if I was ready. There was a large mound of dirt next to us, which I'm sure we could dive behind should anything go wrong, but I could tell by the look in his eyes that if he sensed there was a problem, he'd be pushing me into the pond with that grenade, and I totally respected that. Still holding my hands tightly, he asked if I remembered what to do. I would have thrown him some attitude for asking such an insulting question. How dare he question my ability to perform such a basic skill? But remembering I nearly killed us both with my stone throw reaching for the sun, I knew better. Yes, I was ready. He removed his hands from mine and stepped away, never taking his eyes off my hands to ensure they were gripping it tight enough. As I held the grenade in my hand, I took a moment to take in the situation, though I rationally knew that as long as I did what was rehearsed, everything would be okay. I also knew that there was potential for things to go bad. Like really bad. Life-altering, if not ending bad. My heart was pounding, and even the butterflies in my stomach were looking for cover. I don't know what the Khmer phrase would be to describe it, but in English I thought, this sh** is real. So I took a breath, slowly swung my arm back, then forward, then release. Okay, so here's what no one told me, and I never saw in all those movies and TV shows I'd watched all my life. So when the handle is released, it sets off a cap, which in turn sets off the fuse. Okay, I knew this part, so that wasn't a surprise. What did surprise me, or didn't occur to me, was the pop sound of the cap the moment I released the grenade and the handle came off. Even though it's just a relatively small sound, when you are nervously anticipating a major explosion, any unexpected popping sound is quite unwelcome. Also, you know there's those moments in your life where everything seems to slow down? The brain starts capturing life images at such a fast rate you can slowly navigate each millisecond. So a span of seconds went something like this. Release grenade. Hear the pop sound. Oh no, what happened? Am I okay? Oh, of course I'm okay. That was the cap that went off in the handle that was released. And of course it's going to make a sound. It's crazy, I didn't think of that before. If it had been the grenade exploding, I certainly would have known it. Or, I wouldn't have known it because I'd be dead. Or focus on the metal in my stomach. Okay, look at the grenade. Oh, look at that arc. Oh, that's not too bad. Oh, I'll take a step back. That'll be safe. Wait, seriously? Why did I take a half a step back? What was that really going to do? Okay, I'll take a half a step forward. Ooh, look at that grenade splash into the water. Nice. Okay, I'll take a half step forward again. Or should I take a half step back? How big is the splash going to be? Will I get wet? Wait, it's not going off. There's no explosion. What? Did I do something wrong? Let me take another step forward. Wait, how is that going to help me investigate? Crap, something must have gone wrong because it should have... Boom! Splash! It was a supremely satisfying splash. As my brain returned to normal speed, my body felt a rush of exhilaration. I looked towards my guide, and I'm not sure if I was looking for congratulations or approval, but I did get a smile and a thumbs up. 
In spite of those positive gestures, I'm pretty sure somewhere in his eyes I saw a look of, dude, I literally risk life and limb every single day for dumbass foreign tourists like you just so I can earn a living and provide for my family. I'm glad you had your fun and got your kicks throwing explosives that have littered my country through war and terror my entire life, but I'm just glad I survived another day so I can make it back home. He led me back along the same path through the bushes. When we got back to the tables and chairs, he turned to me and said, So, AK-47 next? I paused, and I thought, Eh, sure. On the ride back to town, I recounted my experiences that morning. I realized I had signed no waiver. No one in the world knew I was there. And I figured if anything had gone wrong, I'd probably be at the bottom of that pond right now. And I completely respected that. For the full story, as well as some pictures, head on over to honeyroastedtshirts.com. Send me a line, drop me a comment. Once again, big thanks to Honey Roasted T-Shirts for all their support. Honey Roasted T-Shirts, they don't sell T-Shirts, but if they did, they'd be Honey Roasted. Don't forget to like and subscribe, and feel free to share this with others. Are you a member of the J-Luck Club? Would you like to be? If so, subscribe to this podcast wherever you get your podcasts. And visit the aforementioned Honey Roasted T-Shirts to check out more. On our next episode, I'm heading to Ampil, just outside the Cambodian capital of Phnom Penh. I'll be working on a volunteer project at the Peaceful Children's Home. If you listen to this podcast, or you've read the blog, or read the emails, or maybe you've heard me tell that story about the time a cow got spooked and chased a group of us down an Indian alleyway, well, you just might be a member of the J-Luck Club. Thank you for staying tuned for the journal extras. None of this will be on the exam. Finally, the truck arrives. Moods were getting bitter about the wait, probably a late hour of our arrival in Siem Reap. The possibility of our stuff now being pilfered. We rearrange the packs and it proves to be a lot more comfortable. Of course, the extra passenger we picked up confused and irritated the bunch. Shall we toss him over? It turns out he was a great guy, the archeologist working on the temples of Angkor. Oh yeah, that was our guy, the archaeology friend. I remember we were a little bitter that we were already cramped and then somebody else was coming on. He was kind of sitting on the edge hangover and I think we seriously did think about pushing him off. The temples of Angkor are some of the most amazing creations I've seen in my life. I don't have the confidence in my writing ability to express it all, so I'll just summarize. If you want to know, you gotta go. I do recommend you go, by the way. Oh, hey, check out this picture of me on my three-day pass to Angkor Wat. August 2nd, 2 a.m., but I didn't know this at the time. Wake up. Gotta get up for sunrise. Gotta get up for that sunrise. Sharon says, Jay, are you getting up already? Stumble around. Look for flashlight. Look at watch. Oops. 4 a.m., take two. Gotta get up for sunrise. Gotta get up for sunrise. Oh, here it is. I saw the sunrise from behind Angkor Wat. It was a sight worthy of people saying, I want to see the sunrise behind Angkor Wat before I die. Absolutely. Completely agree.
<laughs> my shorthand. Very cool experience, VCE. First few pages I just wrote VCE. <laughs> Martini Discotheque. I shake my groove thing with the Khmers and even do some of their dancing. Guess I have to dance in every country. Killing Fields Monument. Bones and skulls, each crushed or smashed in where fatal blows landed so as not to waste bullets. Landmine Museum, run by Akira, a 27-year-old who has dedicated his life to clearing landmines and making Cambodia safe. Oh, check it out. Here we go. Welcome to the Landmine Museum and Information Center. This is taped into my journal. Cambodia has experienced blood, terror, and civil war in recent history, particularly under Pol Pot. My name is Akira, director of the museum, which is located past the Children's Hospital on Angkor Wat Road. I have examples of a wide range of weapons, including a variety of mines, which I have cleared by myself. They have all been made 100% safe. When I was five years old, my parents were killed by the Khmer Rouge. I was then forced to leave my village and work in the fields. As a conscript with the Vietnamese army, I used to lay landmines in the same fields. Whilst a young man, I cleared landmines for the government, and now I work for the people of the country. I'm happy to share my experiences with you and speak English, Japanese, and French. Please donate something if you wish, as my museum is not government-funded. Wow. Oh, I've got a picture of him, too. That's right, a picture of him with a landmine. God, he was just a few years older than me, or he is just a few years older than me. But man, talk about different lives. You know, maybe that last part should be on the exam.